Welcome, everyone, to the live recording of Screen Talk. Please welcome IndieWire Executive Editor Eric Cohn and Editor-at-Large Ann Thompson. Wow. In person, Ann Thompson. Hello, All the way Eric. from the left coast. We've seen each other before this. But. Yeah, but I have to say, we've been doing this podcast for six years. We started Screen Talk because we like to see each other at film festivals and argue about things. But we didn't live in the same place, so we did it online using various technologies. So I like to think we were ahead of the curve in, in so far as what people have been doing the past it year. It was an easy pivot. And yet here we are. So this is, it's, it's really exciting, honestly, just to be back around New York, seeing movie people, seeing movies, feeling like the culture is kind of waking up a little bit. It's like that sleeping dragon that just got like poked. Like it's not totally there yet, but it's starting to get there. And we argue a lot about the direction of the industry. We do, the we do like to argue a lot. And the thing is, it's because I, I feel that I am more of an idealist than you. Hmm. And let me, let, me, let me make an argument that I think is maybe sort of utopian. And you can take me back, back down to earth. Because I was, I was up here before listening to M. Night Shyamalan talk. And first I was thinking, oh, we have to follow that guy. <laughs> what a twist. But also, I was listening to what he was saying about how difficult it still is for this guy to make movies. And I was thinking, if it's really hard for him, think about what it's like for all these other people who don't have you know, decades of experience and don't have the kinds of resources that somebody who's learned to navigate the business has. So to me, that's why the return of film festivals is so valuable because it cr it's creating this sort of platform for films and filmmakers that wouldn't exist otherwise. Is that enough of an argument in your mind for the sort of future no, no, of no. this I business? I believe that film festivals are essential and what this one is doing, um, it's filling a void that's been really out there all during the pandemic. You can't have a small independent film that hasn't been established in some way, uh, get into the marketplace and, and find an audience. You have to be able to brand it, identify it, get people like Eric to write about it, get people to uh, make a fuss about it, build some noise. And that's what this festival did. It didn't do enough of it to get in the Heights See, open. I was waiting for that. <laughs> So let's talk about it for a second, right? Because to me, I was, I, last time we recorded this podcast, it was before In the Heights came out. And I had a great time at the opening night of the festival, which some of you may have experienced in Washington Heights, watching that movie and feeling like, okay, the euphoria in the room could very much translate commercially. And that did not happen. So what was the disconnect between the festival hype around that movie and the, the sort of national potential for that movie to be a big sort of welcome back to the theaters experience. So there was a kind of inflated expectation placed on that movie, very similar to Tenet, you know, where it was supposed to be the savior. It was the highest profile, big movie that wasn't a horror movie or an action movie. It was a, a movie for critics and adults. It was something that was a crowd pleaser in theory, a studio movie with a budget, but it didn't have stars. And that was the one reason it didn't open. And the other is that it was um, a musical that was known to musical circles, but not a big hit like Mamma Mia or Les Mis, something that was a huge global hit that everyone knew and loved. And all of those factors made it a smaller movie. 
and it did better in New York than anywhere else. So Tribeca did its job. Well, and that's the other thing. I kind of embraced be living in a bubble. We did before that this idea that you know even if the rest of the country is struggling to keep movie theaters as powerfully impactful as they can, this is a very effective market for people who want to go see certain kinds of films and they're sort of ahead of the curve and sometimes not indicative of the life a movie will have but it's it's also it's it's troubling to me because on some level shouldn't we know better than to assume that in the heights is going to be a big movie by now did we forget how this business works i mean the idea that a movie should flop that hard after all these expectations it was also playing shocking. on HBO Max at the same time. Okay, so let's talk so about that. So that was that. a whole other aspect of it. So the audience was split. And I'm not one of those people who says you have to see it in a theater. You know, you can't watch it at home. Of course you should watch it at home if that's what you want to do. It's fine. I don't know about that. But, but no, I think it's better to see it in a theater. I encourage people to go to the theater. But there is a little bit of a, um, you, there's something wrong with you if you don't see it in a theater, which I don't buy into. I mean, I, I try to be progressive about these things, but I do also, I mean, the other day I saw Black Widow. And Black Widow, if you watch it at home, some journalists could just say, I don't feel safe going to a movie theater, and they'll get a link to watch that movie. I can't imagine the experience. I mean, there was a movie that was literally designed for the theatrical context. I'm not saying that's the business model. I'm just saying that that is how it works. And without that, it's just a lesser experience. No, if you want to see a $200 million movie and get your uh, full money's worth, you're better off at a theater. To me, it's like you could go to Hawaii or you could pull up a YouTube video at home. That's the, that's the disconnect that I don't totally get. I mean, look, this festival is doing Tribeca at home. I'll be curious to see what the numbers are like. What did people actually watch? What did they stay engaged with? There's been this whole thing that's happened this past year where festival experiences migrated online. We saw some more successful than others. We saw a whole business open up of companies that helped you get your content online. But I'll be curious to see how long that lasts because I don't think festival movies really thrive in that same kind of context. I will say that I am not an enormous fan of the drive-in or the outdoor movie experience, even though Tribeca did a great job and they, they're beautifully mounted. And I saw the, a, a couple of movies outside and it was pleasant, but I don't want to hear the helicopters and, and the generators. And I want to be in a movie theater with perfect sound and perfect immersion and not be distracted by the people walking in front of me and stuff. So I, I, I'm looking forward to seeing all my movies in movie theaters. But there, it, it, even before the pandemic, there was this sense that something was shifting in terms of how audiences were sort of getting these new options in terms of how they how they wanted to experience a movie. You know, and there there are a lot of films now where I couldn't really tell you that you're going to get your money's worth to go out and spend whatever it costs to go to a movie theater. And I think that's the challenge. It's less that I whether or not I think you should see it on a big screen, and more whether or not it's actually going to be worth the investment you're putting into it. So, for example, there's this Steven Soderbergh movie playing, uh, actually tonight as we're recording, No Sudden Move, that's going to HBO Max. The gala centerpiece that's one day before the end of the festival. Yeah, and it's, it's fun. I enjoyed it. It's a big, crowded ensemble of sorts. Um, and Soderbergh doing his little tap dancing thing where somehow it's all really entertaining even though there's so much stuff happening and it's hard to follow. Let's just but say it's in Ocean's Eleven mode. Yeah, Ocean's Eleven, a bit of a crime caper, crime gone wrong thing. But uh, I don't know if 
I, don't, I mean, it costs money to go see that in a movie theater, and if you already have HBO Max baked into your home viewing that plan... That one's a perfect HBO Max movie. It really is, and it's really entertaining. Benicio Del Toro and Don Cheadle are delicious. They're just incredibly fun to watch. They make it work. And I was having this conversation with somebody recently about the kind of TV versus film divide, and what's fascinating about that one is that it's, it's kind of, in some ways, it works for a TV audience, even though it, you know, if you stretched it into a series, I don't know if it would necessarily be something you would want to engage with long term. But it's just enough of sort of like this dose of Soderbergh and whatever to work, and it'll work in, at home. So that that's kind of it. But then there's this other movie coming out today, Luca, a Pixar movie, and you have to watch that thing on Disney Plus. You can't go see it in a movie theater. That's this shocking. Is, to this me. is an interesting case where um, the theater owners. And most of Hollywood are shocked that Disney made this decision to take a Pixar movie, which is the definition of a commercial movie. Some of these movies have made a billion dollars worldwide. And, and put it on Disney Plus for just the price of the subscription. No extra surcharge, no premium VOD, no 30 bucks. You know, it, it, in this case, it's an encouragement to get people to subscribe. Obviously, that's the reason that they're doing it. But why are they depriving the theaters of a movie that could be a delicious entertainment and sell a lot of popcorn? And I like the movie. I think some people have said it's sort of slight by Pixar, Pixar standards. I think it's a, it's a quiet film, but it's like 80-ish minutes long. And to me, that's actually great for movie theaters because you could cram that into a lot of show times, and it's it's a family-friendly movie that also would work for an older audience in a way. There are some conversations about what it's really about, you know, in terms of like the tension between these two boys who are actually sea monsters. But uh, I liked it quite a bit. I mean, it's I, really I, lovely. It's charming and it's fun and it's slight. And I have to ugh, think that, word. that they did. No, it's not. Death it, sentence, Anne. It's not Inside Out. It's not Pete Doctor. Do you subscribe to Disney Plus for Slight? That's that's the challenge that no, people have No, it's delightful. Now. It's absolutely, and it's also artistic. It's extraordinarily well made. The way that they make the two characters turn back and forth, and and the rules of the water. Humans to sea monsters. Absolutely yeah, the world building done. is really Incredible. cool. Incredible. And uh, I mean, it it is a, a smaller film, and it ends. It's also kind a of summer quickly. escape. Yeah, you know, to Italy. But uh, but it, but it's a, another thing that I think that happens that you, it will be fascinating to see whether or not people can sort of contend with this is that if this movie came out in theaters and people liked it, it would play in theaters for a while and you would tell your friends to go see it and it would have this continuing life. On the Disney Plus side of things, I feel like a couple of weeks you're going to be talking about Black Widow. It's almost like it didn't happen. I mean, they're going to have to reintroduce this movie to people to remind them that it happened. And by the fall, when Oscar season kicks in, there's going to be some other animated movies vying for attention. We, we both really liked Flea, for example. That's a big one. So it, it does feel like, on some level, this movie is really being marginalized. It's being diminished, and the people at Pixar don't like it. It's dangerous, in a way. I think it's dangerous for Disney to make these kinds of decisions. And, and this is a challenge I think a lot of studios are going to have. I mean, look what HBO Max did this year to all its filmmakers. We're still in a transition phase where the studios are trying to make up for lost time. And during the pandemic, they're trying to make back revenue. And they're trying to build their platforms, uh, their, their streaming platforms. So I'm not sure what the permanent impact is going to be or what their behavior patterns are going to be in the end. 
Yeah, we're, we're going to Cannes in a couple of weeks. We're really excited about that. We're going to be bleary-eyed from partying on the 4th of July and get on a, on a flight out to Speak Nice. Speak for yourself. <laughs> we'll see how it goes. But it's, it's going to be fascinating because 74-odd movies, for that festival, that's a lot of movies. And many of them have been waiting to get out there. And we don't know what kind of market is going to greet them because if the festival environment is always so fragile. But these are films from all around the world for different kinds of audiences, different kinds of sensibilities. And every time one of these things happen, I mean, the festival hype is so dangerous anyway. Look at what happened within the Heights. Now you're gonna have films where they just, they don't even have that kind of machine behind them. So I'm, I'm very concerned about that. And I'm wondering how we, how, we cho- how we choose to adapt to the conversation about them to make sure that it's not pure negativity all the time. Well, I'm just looking forward to the movies that are going to play there. I'm looking forward to The French Dispatch and Annette and all the other, uh, you know, the, the new uh, Sean Baker movie. Uh, you know, it's, it's, it, I, there's enough to keep me happy. I want to see Stillwater with Matt Damon. I want to see Blue Bayou, this Korean-American story. I want to see all of it, and I'm going to eat it up, and I'm going to be in the south of France, and I'm not apologizing for my uh, lovely life. But see, all those movies that you just listed have audiences, I think. I mean, everybody's excited for the Wes Anderson movie, and a Matt Damon movie is like already a Matt Damon movie. What I'm going to be curious to see is something like, well, I don't know, Souvenir 2. But before you go on, those, none of those movies that I mentioned are slam dunks at all. They're okay. the ones with the highest profile, granted. Yeah, it's a good starting point. Okay, but you're saying there's all these other films and what's going to happen to them, the ones that nobody's ever heard of. You're going to yeah. review them. And you got to get the conversation going. Something people want to see. Right, and then the question is, well, is somebody else going to know, hear that and decide, okay, I'm going to invest some money in making sure to take the next step. I mean, that's that's the scariest part to me is whether or not the, I mean every year we do these features like memo to the distributors please buy these movies and I feel like we're going to be really begging this time unless people are really starved for content but I can't really tell I mean what, what are you going to do you think you've, you've been going to events and talking to buyers this past week in Tribeca there's a, I mean, there's a what's, what's interesting is that there's a kind of backlog and, and there's all these movies that are finally hitting the market like the, the Anthony Bourdain movie the Roadrunner movie uh, from Morgan Neville it, it was sitting around for a little bit um, and waiting for a chance to get out there and play on the big screen and and there's a lot of movies like that that, that are just finally coming out like uh, I carry you with me the Sony Pictures classics was it Sundance 2020 and is finally coming out this is a wonderful movie which I hope you go see it's and you went you went to actual, an, an event for that movie there they're really I, I helped curate a, a sidebar at this festival called Critics Week and we were gonna play that movie at this festival last year we we're going to introduce that film which which premiered at Sundance and Sony had it there and they were going to release it like a year ago and that's a company that has unlike some people like some of the bigger plays we've talked about really been so invested in theatrical that they chose to hold on to their movies and I'll be curious to see what that means now because a movie like that doesn't have stars <laughs> I mean it's it's sort of the it, it is a narrative but it has a documentary-ish component to it and uh, it's a it's an immigration crisis story and it is really powerful I wouldn't say you just sell the representational factor on it the way that they you know Warner Brothers tried to do on 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 in the Heights but it even if it's really well reviewed and Sony classics puts it in movie theaters 
who's who's buying a ticket to go see that movie? What 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 is what does a company like that see as sort of the viability of doing that right now? I mean, what what, what you gossip know them. did you they get? Are, Sony Pictures Classics, Michael Barker and Tom Bernard are incredibly invested in the theatrical experience, and they're just going to go down fighting. They're never going to give up, and and this is one of those movies that's just going to build word of mouth. It's it's got that's that's the play. And by the way, we're sitting on a roof, for those of you who can't see us, because this is audio, and we're looking out over New York uh, at sunset uh, with this extraordinary vista over the, the Hudson River. I'm really, it's really quite beautiful. It is incredible. I mean, for all the, the weirdness of the past year, the fact that people have been forced to go get comfortable sitting outside more has been a nice plus. Sure. So I hope that sticks around. and. Um, even though, you know, it's, fu it's funny to me, I wonder if this festival knew how easily you could get people inside now, relative to a few months ago, how they would have programmed the festival differently, because all these films are playing outside, and once the they big They didn't know the calendar. Exactly. No. So, so now you can go inside without a mask. I mean, and, and think about where we're going to be in a couple months. I mean, the fall season is going to be a total attempt to, to, uh, to return to normal. I mean, New York Film Festival, we don't know about Toronto, but we know Telluride. All these festival entities are going to try to just really get back into their groove in a, in a really aggressive way. So a lot of people are looking forward to Telluride. I, that's the one everybody seems to be heading for, the, even the people who are not going to Cannes. But let's remember, it is very expensive. It's hard to get to. So this is a, you're talking well, about a VIP Well, they sold the tickets crowd, out a long right. time ago, yeah. So, yeah. But, so it's, it's a sort of this attempt to bring back something that is not, you know... Uh, you can't duplicate that model. Like, there can only be one Telluride. And not one thing I'm curious about, I get a lot of flack sometimes because we, we cover all these big festivals and then the regional festivals come to us and, and they say, hey, we exist too. So one thing I'm really curious to see is, you know, Provincetown Film Festival is happening uh, right now as we're talking. And there, there are some people I know out there and they were saying, you know, some stuff is indoors, some stuff is outdoors. They still have some drive-ins. So it's hybrid-ish, I suppose. And it, those festivals are really reliant on their local communities to support them and, and people who, you know, they, they glean a few people who are, who are not locally based to come on a regular basis. But largely it's, it's about those local audiences. And I think those festivals are going to be interesting to watch because that's that's a bigger challenge in a way is to win back a really specific crowd as opposed to like everybody when you're putting on a big show these big festivals you know we're all going to be talking about can but are we going to be talking about some of the other smaller ones when they, they have function to make the on case? a more local basis i mean it's a different model yeah yep. that's about sponsorship and having the money to throw the festival i think the audience will be there i certainly hope that you're right about that so let's see what happens. Let's take some questions from the audience. Um, if you have any questions, you're welcome to stick your hand in the air. And we've got this. In oh, we don't have to stick your hand in the air because we have a microphone on a stand. So you can actually oh, you just, have to like, get up and go to the mic. Oh, now you can yell. You can yell. I don't know if the mic will capture it. If, if, if you, yeah, it won't be recorded. Uh. It's like you don't even exist. So. Um, so if you have any questions, feel free to step up to the mic and, and throw it in there. In the meantime, and you want to tell us about any movies that you've seen that you've enjoyed? Uh, I really or not enjoyed? No, I, I mean, this is a really strong documentary film festival, uh, always. Uh, they have a really good lineup, and 
this has been a weird year for someone like me who's always trying to get a bead on what the Oscar race might be for the docs, for example. It's early days. Yeah, this is, there are a lot of movies that just haven't shown yet, um, and they're going to be coming out over the next few months. So uh, I think the, the Roadrunner movie is a strong contender. Uh, the uh, Leonard Bernstein uh, movie called Bernstein's Wall, about his politics and his celebrity and how they mingled. Fascinating movie. Um, there's a um, there's a Jackie Collins movie which I found sort of eye-opening. I, I learned a lot about Joan Collins' sister and uh, sexy writer that I didn't know about. Um, and uh, what else? Did you see some? Yeah, I've seen a few. Uh, I've seen the ones that, that you talked about. I thought Roadrunner was really strong and. and um and Bernstein's Wall, both of those are really reliant on archival yeah. and these strong personalities. I mean, those are the kinds of things that really make docs pop these days. So I enjoyed seeing those. Uh, I'm presenting a movie on Sunday called Ballad of a White Cow, which premiered in competition at Berlin. And uh, as far as I know, it doesn't have a U.S. distributor yet. Uh, but uh, to me, what, what's great about it is that it's, it's, a, it's a story about a woman in Iran Whose, uh, whose husband was wrongfully executed and she finds out later. And then the story is what happens next. And uh, it's, it, I love that movies like that can now travel to other festivals and have some kind of audience. I'll have to so. check that out. The other one I saw was Lost Leonardo, which is one of those, um, The Lost Leonardo, which Sony Pictures Classics has, which is one of those um, elevated, glossy art world movies, you know, very entertaining about the, the, the Salvatore Mundi, uh, Leonardo da Vinci painting, very controversial, that has disappeared and isn't being shown, and why. Is it, do they tell you why? Yes. Okay, good. So you get your money's worth on that you one. You do. <laughs> well, I, I'm going tomorrow to see a documentary that seems to be untitled from uh, the filmmakers behind American Dave Factory. Chappelle. It's this Dave Chappelle thing from Ohio, and that's a closing night film, which is at Radio City Music Hall. Full capacity, no masks. No social distancing. No, uh, None of that stuff. It's all yours. <laughs> So I, I don't see anyone at the microphone. Oh, we have a question over here. Would, do you think you can make the journey so I don't get in trouble with don't the tech team? Or will this fellow, he'll run it to you. We got, we got great service on, on the rooftop of Spring Studios. Okay. I, I paint in virtual reality like once, and I really enjoyed it. And uh, I didn't get a chance to see the VR, but when I was looking at the screen this afternoon, I asked a question about the art. And I wanted to know, what was your, you know, your input on the art and VR this year for Tribeca? Because that's something I'm very passionate about, oh, merging great question. art and VR. Uh, when I paint in VR, it's a little frightening because it's void. But I love painting in reality like this. And, and I wanted to know what do you think the future is when we merge VR and art for Tribeca? Great and question. You, you got this, right? You're all over. <laughs> Eric is the VR man. What do you paint in, tilt brush? Okay, yeah, it's a similar kind of a thing. Well, I see Lauren Hammonds, uh, the guy who programs all the immersive and VR stuff here, who did an amazing job 
uh, with the lineup this year. I mean, it's extraordinary to see festivals that actually lean into new media because it's a totally different world and it's a totally different community. I got really into this stuff in part because like 15 years ago, I was fascinated by theoretical conversations about new media, transmedia, convergence culture, and all that kind of stuff. But now the technology is caught up with the conversation. And so it's really fascinating to see people who come from different kinds of creative backgrounds, like coding and so forth, who are figuring out how to tell immersive stories in a way that just didn't exist before. So VR is fascinating to me because you never really know what you're gonna get. If you're watching a 360 documentary, yeah, you move your head around and you're watching this stuff. But a lot of the, the stuff that's uh, you know more interactive, is, it's, you, it's a completely new experience every time. And uh, you know I think there's a lot of good stuff in this particular lineup that, that is great for that. But I also think that VR is kind of groundbreaking on the social level. We've seen attempts to create virtual festivals this year that have really tested what's possible. And I think we've only just started to see the first level of that because Everybody's coming back to the festival environment now, so Eric they don't want to do that. His little avatar. But, I, but I, let me tell you, I, I've had a blast running around. I, Lauren, Lauren and I hung out at an event one time in avatar form. I, I went to Burning Man in VR. I'm not a burner, but I had a great time. There were 14,000 people at avatars in, in Burning Man this past year. It's mind blowing the kind of experiences you can have when you put on this thing. And I feel Ready like Ready Player One. It's over only here. going to keep. And look, yes, there are some scary aspects about the privacy. And, and all that stuff, that's not the department that I've necessarily been drilling into yet. So we'll see how all that develops. But on the creative side, I think it's, it's amazing that you're doing that because the potential to do new creative things in that environment is completely unprecedented. So that's where I fall on all that stuff. Anne doesn't like putting the headsets on. I'm, I, th I think I might no, need to no, like no, order no, one for you. I'm just too cheap to buy one. <laughs> The, the Oculus Quest 2 is only like There's 300 like 350 bucks. Well, it's a good thing. You can go down like two floors, right, Lauren? Just put, put on one of those. They sanitize it for you and everything. So, Any other questions from the crowd? I see one here. Hi. Um, I work in theater, and I remember when End of Heights was a Broadway show, and it's great to see that it became like a, a film adaptation. But what I'm trying to understand, I would like your opinion behind and your thoughts is that do you think that it's an accurate description of what the community is? Because I really feel as though that I'm trying to understand that the Lin Manuel Miranda did he dilute the actual uh, community and what it conveys? But it's predominantly Dominican, and the music and the food and everything can seem like it was an amalgam of different Latino cultures. And I don't understand if that was his approach to kind of commercialize the film more to appease his producers or whoever distrib distrib distributors or you know, so forth. I just want to get your thought that if it wasn't, if it didn't have a, a different types of uh, communities, then would it still be appealing where it's just be predominantly um, a film that represents Dominican community as opposed to a smash up of what we saw? I am not Lin-Manuel Miranda, nor am I John M. Chu, so it's hard for me to put explanations in their heads. I know that Miranda has um, apologized for uh, a lack of uh, real diversity in, in the range of people in the movie, um, but um, uh, that's all I know. Thanks for asking that question, because I've been thinking a lot about the colorism debate around this movie and, and just how much it manifested overnight. One of the things that was fascinating to me about it is that Lin-Manuel Miranda had to make such a specific kind of statement to deal with it. You know, to say that 
he 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 made a mistake and and he's listening and he wants to do better but also to say that he feels proud of the story that he told which to me was probably because on some level this was someone who was seen as a representational breakthrough and was in a room full of white people who weren't necessarily correcting him to think more expansively about how to represent that community. Half my family's Colombian and they're all different colors and I'm very familiar with the fact that the idea of Latino or Latino X or Latina or whatever we want to call it tends to be seen in very narrow parameters because a lot of people who talk about it don't really know what they're talking about. And I think the challenge within the Heights is that we have to be able to appreciate how well it broke through the conversation about Latino representation, even though it made a mistake. And for Rita Moreno to go on TV and then make her own mistake and then apologize the next day later, it's taken us decades to talk about the fact that she had to darken her face in West Side Story and to realize that that's a problem. One week after In the Heights, and we already recognize the shortcomings and are trying to do better as a culture. That to me feels like real progress. So thanks for the question. Any others? Well, on that rousing note, <laughs> thank you everybody for coming out. Thank you for coming. I think coming. there's an open bar, so stick around, have a good time. Come and ask us in person if you want to. Thank you, Eric. Thank you.